0: Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Buddhaṃ dhammaṃ saṅghaṃ namo tassa We've had a lot of visitors over the last couple of weeks and understandably that uh, meant uh, a lot of talking and I feel like my voice is almost about to uh, go into retreat. (laughs) So um, that would be unfortunate actually because as you probably know I'm also about to leave and go to Thailand and then go to New Zealand and uh, so I will need to be able to talk. A little bit. So, if this evening I could just speak for a little while, not so long. There is something on my mind I wanted to speak about, and that was uh, the matter of religious tolerance, or maybe uh, religious intolerance. You don't have to uh, be very aware to to know there's uh, a lot of concern, uh, particularly. Well, there always has been concern amongst you know, thinking people about the effect that religion has. Is it? Does it bring harmony? Does it bring concord? It, it often appears to be the contrary. And right now, there's, of course, the issue with the Muslim community in this, this country. And are the Muslims the problem? What is the problem? And a lot of Television programs are being made about it, and and very sensational articles written, and so I thought it'd be useful if we just raise this up as something to contemplate, to see where we're at with it, and and hopefully to see what we can contribute in a constructive, helpful way. It's certainly a great pity if the view that is held by some that religion is a source of conflict and disharmony uh, was to be confirmed or be to increase it'd be a great pity if if more people picked up that view and held to it and then wrote off all religions it was a view that i held actually i after my early life conditioning and a very evangelical kind of Fundamentalist leaning form of Protestantism. I uh, I was very disinclined towards any religion. Science, yes; psychology, yes. But not religion, and I developed a view that religion was unhelpful. And in the form that I was uh, presented it, it, it was actually quite unhelpful in many ways. But That view was an inaccurate view and and fortunately I I had some good friends who who had some influence over me and they they more or less dragged me along to a Buddhist meditation retreat. And as much as I detested, and I use that word quite intentionally, uh, a lot of what was presented in terms of rituals and the, uh, and the, 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 the particular monk who was teaching it, the appearance, the outer side of it, was uh, was a complete turn-off. But the practice worked. The practice worked, and just doing what I was encouraged to do with regards to focusing attention and exercising mindfulness and restraint and, uh, did generate a very valuable, important experience. It was transformative in my life. I re- redirected things. And then when I traveled and ended up in Thailand which is I think by any worldly standards a very religious country, yeah. um, people practicing some sort of doing some sort of religious practice uh, pretty much all over the place, um, my mind was a little more receptive and open to it and 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 I did come to see that uh, religion as it was practiced there uh, was quite different from what I'd been informed with and So, I'd like to think, and I I do work very hard, very hard to try and present Buddhism in this context, in this culture, at this time, in a way that is not going to be divisive, that is effectively going to bring about harmony and increase uh, concord in the community. And of course, the primary skill that as Buddhists we're all working with is the cultivation of mindfulness. And I think this is a place to start, that that if we have a mindful approach to the issues that we're faced with... I was going to say dilemma, because it is a kind of a dilemma. It, you know, it, it is, there are some pretty weird things go on and weird teachings put around, not just the name of, of, of Islam, but... The name of Christianity and in the name of Buddhism, there's also some pretty weird Buddhist teachings around as well, very weird, and that uh, lead to uh, very distorted views and, and and conflict. And if our reaction to this, if we, if we come across something that is off putting or thoroughly disagreeable or completely unacceptable, then what is our reaction? That's that's the mindful mindful approach. What is my reaction? To reflect on my reaction to it, to be mindful of my reaction. How does it affect me when I come across some of these things that are said? Like the um, you know, there is television programs, the secret filming that goes on now. You go into go into a mosque and film some some uh, preacher kind of coming up with this rabid stuff about how you're supposed to smack girls or hit girls even if they don't wear the right clothing and hit other children if they don't bow properly and, and form a state within a state and and we've got to overcome the infidels and all this kind of talk, how does that affect me? How does that impact on me? If we have mindfulness, if that's our commitment, then we're in the best position to... Take responsibility for our reactions. Now, it's not to say we're not going to have a reaction. Buddhism's, a, uh, I think, yeah, fair enough to say. Buddhism is a very tolerant religion, generally speaking, and certainly encourages tolerance. And the great king Asoka, who many of you will know about, and who would have read some of his edicts that are still recorded on the great pillars around India, where he talks about how if you speak of other religions in a deriding way. Condemning them, is taking praising your own religion and putting anybody else down. where well, you just do a disservice to both religions. And the wise thing to do is to see what is useful in in other's religions and to practice what's useful in your own. So that's the that's the uh, the, the general encouragement in Buddhism to be tolerant. And, and And I think one does see it. I know in Thailand, I'm very impressed with the uh, overall tolerance of other religions, how the king of Thailand is the, the monarch, not only is he the head of the country, but, uh, and he is a Buddhist, but he also uh, very generously provides land and fund for building churches and building mosques. This is, uh, as the head of the land, this is part of his duty as he sees it. And, and up until recently, there has been a, a very high level of, of religious tolerance in Thailand. Certain things have happened there in the last few decades that have somewhat dented that, and that's unfortunate. And, or in uh, Sri Lanka also, um, predominantly Buddhist country and, uh, and in many ways uh, a very tolerant and very beautiful place. But, but um, I, I, read a, I read or I heard a report a few years ago when Colonel Gaddafi was there. Colonel Gaddafi wasn't invited anywhere by anybody for a very long time, although he's kind of you know, cleaned up his his act a little bit lately and people decide he's not so bad. But uh, a few years ago, nobody would even talk to him, let alone invite him to his country. So Sri Lanka, being very tolerant people, they invited Colonel Gaddafi to come and they even gave him airtime on the public radio station. But what he started talking about was encouraging the Muslims to reproduce more. So they could <laughs> increase the Muslim population of Sri Lanka. And of course, uh, you know, that was, didn't go down very well. <laughs> Now, if the uh, Buddhists of Sri Lanka were all very mindful, what they would have done is say, "Well, how does that feel you know, when something you know, somebody takes advantage of your tolerance?" So. so that's the place to start, I think, is to to remember as Buddhists. You say, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I'm going for refuge to mindfulness. That's what the Buddha consciousness is. It's that unobstructed awareness, that totally undistorted awareness that has got no limitations. There's no obstructions to the clear seeing of the Buddha. Preferences are completely, one is completely liberated from all preferences, all conditioning. Whatever conditioning there is, is not grasped at, is not identified with. So the Buddha, you know, he he got conditioned when he was a young man to have all sorts of thoughts and feelings about the neighbouring races and tribes and countries and so on, I'm sure. But certainly from the time of his enlightenment onward, there was no identification with any of that conditioning. No preferences. Pure, undistorted compassion and understanding in all directions at all times. So when we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, that's what we are orienting our lives with and say, "I, I believe this is possible, I trust this is possible. And in so doing, we encourage ourselves to inhibit the tendencies to grasp at our conditioning grasping at our conditioning is what conditions prejudice. And so uh, this going for refuge of the word increases mindfulness. This inclines us towards mindfulness. So that when we do come across things that trigger reactions, our uh, response, if not our immediate response, soon afterwards, hopefully, is this, how does this feel? How does this affect me? What's going on here? What feelings are coming up? What thoughts are coming up? Mm-hmm. Now, if we don't have that, well, then that's basically what we have in the world. Yeah. You, know, that, <clears throat> you offend my religion. You offend my tolerance. You know, the English, uh, of course, are understandably very proud of their country or our country, because I'm a British citizen now. Uh, we're very proud of this country. I Actually, I think this is the best country in the world. This country is is great. This is Great Britain. Is it? I think this is my feeling. I've always felt this way, and I still feel this way, and uh, so there you go. That's what I feel about Britain. And I've lived in lots of places in the world, and I, I love this country. And feel very privileged to live here. Now, of course, there's a lot that goes on. that's not very good and so on, but I, I do love this country and feel really hugely privileged and fortunate to live here. And those people who live here and don't feel privileged, well, I think they basically uh, should go and live somewhere else and see what they're missing, because uh, this is really a very fortunate circumstance. However, if um, we get attached to this wonderful circumstance and then other people come in and they start talking about, well, we're going to set up a state within a state and we're going to override the rule of democracy, you shouldn't follow democracy, it's a heathen uh, way of doing things, there's only one law, and it's a law that's dictated by our God, and so on. If we start hearing these things, well, mindfulness comes how does that feel? Do we get all defensive? How dare you come into our country? Start telling us... If we have such reactions... Our commitment to Buddhist practice is to be mindful of those reactions. Mm. Over and over again, I find people ask, "What sort of thoughts should I be having? What sort of feelings should... What sort of feelings should I be having? Not just with regards to something like this, you know, how we feel about other religions and so on, but..." You know, all sorts of things. Like today, there's a large group of people here for the meal and staying afterwards and talking, and somebody was asking about anger. And they are saying how, when anger arises, how they think, I really should get rid of this anger. I really should get rid of this. this anger is bad. I really should get rid of it. And they said, but that's desire. I shouldn't have that, should I? Is that? Is that, Or something like that. That was the sort of line of their questioning. And I tried to point out that that, you know, just trying to have the right thoughts or the right feelings is only one level of practice. And yes, of course we do aspire like we did last week on New Year's Eve. We all spent some, some hours thinking about our aspirations and wrote them down and then offered them up into, into the incense dish as, as, as fragrant offerings to the Buddha, Dhammasangha. We do think of how we should and could and would like to be, and that's skillful thought, and that's uh, appropriate. But that can also become very idealistic. Unrealistic. So aspirations are like stars as you're crossing the ocean. you uh, You orient the direction you're going, you guide yourself by looking at the stars and getting your bearings. But you're not spending all the time looking at the stars and you don't expect to get to the stars. You're not going to the stars. But these stars shine as indicators to help us get our frame of reference and so it is with with, uh, positive thoughts and aspirations how we should and shouldn't be. These things give us a direction in our life. But this is our life. This is what we're doing. This, this experience now. And if we're hot and bothered and agitated and irritated and offended and indignant by what we hear, then that's what we, we've got to know that. We shouldn't just default to, oh, I shouldn't be this way, I should be that way. So mindfulness practice means we're with how it is. Free from judgment. Yeah. And right mindfulness means that we're not judging ourselves for the thoughts and feelings that we have. Because so long as we're compulsively judging, then then our awareness, our mindfulness is not pure, it's not free, it's not really truth discerning awareness. It's obstructed, limited awareness. So we always make the effort to recognise where there's compulsive judging going on. We don't judge the judging and say it shouldn't be this way. We see the judging mind and say, all right, that's extra. We don't need to judge ourselves for having reactions. But we're not following our reactions and that's actually good. We're not following our conditioned reactions. And that's already important, that's an improvement. Yeah. I remember as a, as, a, as a child growing up in in Morrinsville, 16 Studham Street, Morrinsville, in the Waikato, New Zealand, across the road there was a house occupied by Roman Catholics. And I lived there, I think, for 15 years, and I don't think we ever spoke to the people in that house once in 15 years. They had a, they had a, a Mary and Joseph little statues in the garden. And one day, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe after 13 years or something, I asked my, my mother, you know, what were those uh, things in the garden? And she said, Oh, we don't talk about those sort of things. So that was my relationship with Roman Catholics. Actually, the fact that my mother had views about Roman Catholics, having been brought up by a Protestant, a Baptist preacher herself, um, she had conditioned views about Roman Catholics, at least she didn't say anything bad about them. So at least to to restrain our reactions, to know what we aspire towards and then to make the effort to restrain our reactions... Is good, but that doesn't mean to say our reactions are going to disappear. And I notice in my mind, I I, mean, I don't have strong reactions about Roman Catholics now. <laughs> I, uh, but it's interesting. You know, I do find that sometimes when I, I'm talking to somebody who I've got to know quite well and and quite fond of, and then it turns out they're a Roman Catholic, I'm kind of surprised that I, you know, that I, you know, I feel good about them. <laughs> Well, you know, I have sufficient perspective to realise that that surprise is because then that conditioning is still there. Uh, it certainly doesn't interfere with my relationship these days, but there's that conditioning, and so this is helpful. And this is important to realise that we're all conditioned with views by the environment we grow up in. Even if we have the most tolerant parents, it's just the society that we grow up in, the world we grow up in, the media, the way it is. Hey, I went uh, a few months ago. I told you I went to Serbia. visit and like a lot of other people I I found out I had views about what it was going to be like in Serbia. I've been to other European countries, Italy, Slovenia Czech Republic, Germany Denmark, France Spain, lots of other places on the continent but I had this feeling somehow going to Serbia was going to be different (laughs) guess what just like everybody else. It was wonderful. I had a wonderful time in Serbia. And since I've been back, I've been encouraging the other monks and nuns to go there because, because of the unfortunate, <coughs> the unfortunate political strategies that are in place at the moment. You know, nobody in Serbia is allowed to go anywhere without a lot of trouble and a lot of expense. And so you've got 80, 80%, of the, 80% of the university population has never left the country. And they're growing up with a persecuted mentality. And that's really unfortunate, to say the least. But I realised, you know, I was able to reflect on this as I was travelling, because I had this view, and I was watching the fact that I had a view, and sure enough, when I got there, I was able to get a better perspective on the view, just to see, you know, people are people, wherever we are. And we all value our ourselves, we value our family, we value our country, we value our culture. And we all have preferences. All of us do. And... The only way it's possible for us to live together in a harmonious way is if we understand the nature of these preferences. Preferences are natural. It's just part of how the mind operates. We grow up and the mind gets conditioned in certain ways. It's like we get conditioned to speak in certain ways. You grow up in an area and you develop a certain accent. Achenabhinanda is always going to sound like a German. And although his English is very good, you know, he always has his English an interesting German accent. And Raddock is probably always going to sound somewhat Polish. And Hieriko is going to sound Slovenian, and Ajin is probably always going to sound Thai and Richard is very English. And so that's just how it is. That's we get conditioned in this way. But that doesn't mean to say that we have to grasp at the conditioning. And that's what makes the difference. And this is where mindfulness comes in. And mindfulness is so important. And also, if we have mindfulness, then we, and we've inhibited the tendency to be judging, judgmental of, of our own limitations, then we can really reflect on the condition that we find ourselves in. And one of the things that's important to ponder on is not just how unfortunate it is that we have these conflicts, yes, it's understandable, we feel it's unfortunate, and not just how it could be otherwise, and how we should be better and other people should be different, and so on and so forth, but also to reflect on just the nature of this existence, to read what the Buddha said about it, to study what the Buddha said about it, to listen to what other great teachers say about it. And what the Buddha said was that actually, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, that the conditioned realm is characterized by stress or unsatisfactoriness, to use a rather clumsy word. This is the characteristic of the conditioned realm. So long as we're living in the conditioned realm, so long as we're still identified as this body, mind, then our experience of life is going to be one of unsatisfactoriness. There's always going to be stress. There's always going to be tension. There's always going to be some degree of suffering. And when the Buddha said that "sabbe sankara dukkha, that all conditions are dukkha, or all conditions are suffering, that's not a value judgment on conditions, but rather a comment from the ultimate perspective of clarity on the nature of things. This is just how it is, and in this realm, in this dimension. Now, apparently there are other dimensions of samsara, the conditioned realm, that are uh, apparently characterised um, by a lot of happiness. And in the celestial realms, apparently, just, just a whole, just one day of bliss after another. Just lovely music playing and people reading beautiful poetry all day long, nice food and Nice weather and everything. But that's not this realm. The Buddha didn't praise living in the other realms, he praised this realm. He said, actually, this is the ideal place to be for liberation. And uh, whether we go along with, comfortably go along with concepts of hell realms and heavenly realms or not, there's still, this is our experience here, now. And this is the characteristic of this realm, that there's always conflict. Uh, if we're coming from a place, a utopian view, that says that actually we can have have heaven on earth, that this should be beautiful, that life should be wonderful, and everybody should get on with each other. If we have such a view, well, we meet conflict and disagreement with the feeling that it's something going wrong. It's somewhat akin to the the uh, rather faulty medical model that, that some people operate on, which is that you know d- death is wrong. That you know, people shouldn't die. If at all possible, we should be able to freeze ourselves, and then when what's the word is it? What's that word they're talking about? Cryonics or something? That, when you you know you're going to be able to bring everybody back to life again in a few years' time. You can get your dog done these days in America get your dog frozen so that um, when the science is sufficiently developed then you can have your dog come back again now I don't know what age you get your dog frozen or what age people would get frozen and the whole thing is kind of weird I think, I mean to say the least but there is this thing for, in some people's minds that life is being alive is, is ultimate and that distorted view is, leads to rather distorted thinking from uh, the Buddha's reality perspective, of course, old age, sickness and death is perfectly natural. There's nothing wrong. Of course, it's unpleasant. If we have the view that it's going wrong, well then, you know, when we meet people who are dying, we react in a way that somehow it makes them a failure. Uh, you're letting me down because you're dying. Or you're letting me down because you're sick. Or, yeah. I know um, I know at least a couple of people who, who have had... Uh, retarded uh, children or handicapped children and they had the most beautiful attitude there was absolutely no hint of there's something wrong there it's just just the loving relationship was just beautiful i know one particular woman she had two children one was born um, handicapped and then the second one was was uh, was not handicapped up until the age of four and then got mumps and the doctor thought it was flu or something rather and sent him home again and Within a few hours, he was brain damaged, and he's got the age of a seven-year-old, and now he's about 30. And I watched this mother uh, with these two children, a very elegant, dignified woman, uh, well-educated, and dealing with the difficulties. But because of her view that this wasn't wrong, that there were causes for this, She perhaps couldn't understand the causes, but there wasn't something going wrong. There were causes for this, and her job was just to respond out of wisdom and compassion. And she was able to respond out of wisdom and compassion. That was, that was truly beautiful and helpful, wonderfully helpful. But likewise, with conflict in this, this human realm that we live in, if we approach it thinking that conflict is wrong, you know, prejudice is wrong, there shouldn't be, you know, prejudice against Christians or Muslims or or gays, or blacks, or Jews, or all these prejudices that are around. You know, if we if we condemn the prejudice as being wrong, does that really help? Now, certainly, please don't hear me saying that I'm condoning the prejudice, but rather the prejudice is something that we need to understand. What is the in ourselves? You know, what what is the what, what happens? When does prejudice come about? How does it come about? If we have non-judgmental here and now body-mind awareness, well then there's a chance that we'll be able to be honest enough when we ourselves are experiencing prejudice and we can look into it and we can say, what's going on is this deluded relationship to reality whereby we're clinging, we're grasping at views, we're grasping at conditioning, we're grasping. And we're doing the prejudice, we're creating the prejudice, we're responsible for the prejudice. And we're no better than anybody else in the world who's indulging in prejudices. And that helps a lot, because that brings about more tolerance towards others and more understanding. And when there is tolerance and understanding, well, there's a better chance that there'll be some resolution. And so that's something that we can actually do about it. We can, with our commitment to coming to understand the nature of our minds, the nature of thinking, the process of grasping, well, then we are Contributing in a very realistic way, we're not contributing to prejudice; rather, we're contributing to freedom from prejudice and freedom from disharmony, increased concord. So, when we look at these things that are happening in the world and maybe feel disheartened or despairing about it, and think, what can I do about it? Well, I mean, maybe things we can do socially, and yes, that's you know, in another occasion that we could talk about that, but. What we individually can do with regards to our, with respect to our own mind is we can look to see how we're we relating to our conditioning. Are we just automatically going on with going along with what we were conditioned to believe about life and attaching to it, or are we making the effort to experiment with letting go, and we can let go of our thinking, as as tempting as it can be. You know, some of the thoughts, the positive and negative thoughts, they can just feel so attractive. You just feel you—it's just, just so me that thought. There's just so much me in that thought. I want really the feeling associated with it, It's just all me, and it's so important. Well, the training is that if that's what we believe, we need to be honest about that and do what we can do to pull the plug on that belief. Pull the plug on that view. You know, as we train ourselves in meditation, that no matter how tempting the thoughts are, the feelings are, we turn the attention away from them. Yes, there's a time to investigate thoughts and feelings. Yes, there's a time to engage them. But we're only going to be able to engage and investigate them if we can also choose to not engage and investigate them. This is very important with with thinking and the content of our of our meditation that. We're not doing it out of compulsion. We're not being driven into engaging the activity of our mind. So, so we train ourselves over and over again, little by little, to restrain the attention, to bring and bring the mindfulness back to the breathing, the whole body, mind, feeling this body breathing here and now. And then, when we do that, we well, see we don't have to think these thoughts we can hold the thoughts a little more lightly and then we can start to inquire into them. And as we can hold the thoughts and we can hold the feelings, well then our awareness gets a little deeper and then we can start to see the views that we hold. And the views are kind of like a tint of consciousness and an overall view of something. And, and uh, it's interesting how and some of you may have read the transcription of Torkajan Chah gave about this when he was talking about dealing with conceit and how he was saying that in his perspective on things, when he looked at what was going on in the monastery, compared himself to the other monks, he could see that for sure he was better than a lot of the other monks. He could give dumber talks better, he could sew robes better, he could sit meditation better, he could... You know, behave himself better, he could sweep leaves better, he could pull water from the well better, whatever. He could do all these things better. And But then he thought, well, this is, but there's, a, there's a problem there, there's conceit. So how do you deal with that conceited view of I am better? Even when you know you are better. How do you deal with that? And he studied the scriptures and then he talks about how the analysis that's given in the Abhidhamma. And it talks about the nine different types of conceit. But the problem with these nine types of conceit is that not the view the problem with conceited view is not the view but the way we relate to the view now there are these nine types of conceit that are explained in the Abhidhamma and if we try to get rid of all these conceited views of I am equal when in fact I'm equal or I am better when in fact I'm better or I am worse when in fact I'm equal whatever we try and get rid of all these views Well, that's not possible, just to try and get rid of them. What we can do is reflect on them and reflect on our relationship to those views. So Ajahn Shah has a perception that he's better than the other monks, when in fact he is better. He can't pretend he's not better, when in fact he is better. But does he have to be attached to that view that he's better? That's different. So, this is what we can do with our views and our thoughts and our feelings and our prejudices, and our preferences, is to exercise mindfulness to to see how do we relate to these. And, and if we can relate to our own views with mindfulness and understanding, with, with, which is you know, equivalent to non-judgmental awareness, well then surely this is going to affect our behaviour of body and speech as well. And if we can improve ourselves a little bit, well then maybe we can also contribute a little bit of something to the world we live in. So thank you very much for this evening you. for your attention. <laughs>